Hey everybody, welcome to church. My name is Chris, lead pastor at Trinity, and it's good to be with you today uh, in God's house. Before we look at Romans 6, I just want to reflect for a moment on uh, our reading from, from Genesis. Um, that The story of, of Abraham is a really, really powerful, really beautiful story. And uh, I find in my own life, especially over the last couple of years, where I've experienced some remarkable lows in my own journey. Um, I, I find myself deeply connected to, to the stories in, uh, in Genesis and specifically uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way through 18. And today we read about uh, this horribly tragic story of Hagar and her baby Ishmael and they're wandering in the woods and uh, there's no water for them. And, and Hagar is sure that she and her baby are going to die. And she puts him down. And the story is so heartbreaking. And at the same time, we're told in that story that God hears uh, not Hagar's cry. He hears uh, the baby's cry and provides, opens up his mom's eyes and provides water for them. And I've been thinking about just the beauty of the story of Abraham. And I just want to commend it to you that if you're in a place right now of struggling to keep up with what you feel God's promises are, maybe God has given you a vision for where your story would head and, um, and you've made a mess of it. Uh, that's actually the story of Abraham. God tells Abraham that he is going to be the father of many nations, but he is not yet the father of one person. And he looks at himself old. He looks at his wife old. And then he thinks, we're going to have to help God. Uh, and I know none of you have ever tried to help God and made a mess of things. But if you have, Abraham is your guy. Sarah and Abraham are your people because God promises something to them. And Abraham just takes one step after another that seemed to go in the wrong direction. He first goes to Egypt and he tells Pharaoh that his wife is his sister because he's afraid. And Pharaoh takes his wife, his wife as his wife and then finds out and is super mad at him because he's a, kind of a chicken. And then he thinks we got to make a baby and I'm old and she's old. So he and Sarah work out a deal where he makes love to his wife's servant, Hagar, and they have a baby. And Ishmael, that story that we heard from Genesis, God promises to bless Ishmael and make a nation out of him. But Ishmael is what happened in Abraham's life when he tried to get his own hands on the promise of God, when he tried to force something to happen. And when I think about my own life, and maybe you get to think about yours, those moments where God has promised you something about life, about calling, about relationship, around peace, around some sort of movement in your life. And when we try to get our hands on things and make things happen, we end up with these sort of shadows of promise. God had promised Isaac and he got Ishmael first and Ishmael was grief to him his whole life long. And I find it so interesting that in that story, God doesn't uh, curse Ishmael, but Ishmael is complicated. And Abraham lived with that complication his whole life, even as God remained faithful to him. And I think the thing that really strikes me about the covenant that God made with Abraham is that God looked at Abraham, even when Abraham made a mess of things, even when Abraham and Sarah couldn't believe it. And he said, I'm going to do something good for you anyway. Uh, you see in just a couple of chapters behind where we read today that Abraham and Sarah 
don't believe. They laugh. Sarah laughs. And then the, the Lord looks at Sarah and says, you laugh. She said, I didn't laugh. He goes, you did laugh. And God does it anyway. He does his, he does his promise. He works his promise even when we are not really doing a great job of holding up our end of the bargain. And my prayer for you today is that if you're in that space, that you would, you would remember that God's promise and his faithfulness is stronger than your will to make things happen. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 6. Paul then says, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him in baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is free from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, thank you for true words. Thank you for powerful words, God. We pray, Lord, today as we endeavor to sit still with our brother St. Paul and hear what he is saying to the church in Rome and by extension, Holy Spirit, what you are saying to us. We pray, God, that we would think true and deep thoughts about you, that you would help our hearts to be transformed, God, that we would open ourselves up today to what is truly on offer in the gospel and the kingdom of God, that we would avail ourselves of more and more of what you have already done for us. We would receive it and welcome it, God. Speak truth to us, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the image that Paul uses to speak to us about sin and about life, about death and about resurrection is baptism. And today I'm only going to name really three ideas in this passage that will help us try to hold some of the imagery of Paul. What I want to do today specifically is pull you out and through your head down into your guts, in, into your life. Uh, for some of you, you have a kind of muscle memory when you get into the book of Romans, um, where it just pulls you up into your heads. Uh, a lot of um, like highly educated, uh, reformed Christians will just live up in their heads when they read the book of Romans and kind of nerd out about it. Um, I want us to think about what Paul is saying, but I want us to do what Paul would have wanted for his early listeners. I want you to, to let the truth of what we're going to look at in these 11 verses seep deeper down into your life and your lived experience. If you ever just read the Bible and come away with dogma or theology, if you only ever just think, you're not doing the whole job. We have to think and then let the thinking get into the groundwater of our lives. What God is most concerned about 
is the life of God, resurrection life working through you. But for you and me, as it was true for Jesus, it is also true for us. Without entering into death, without relinquishment, and in our case, unlike Jesus, without acknowledging our sin, we'll never move into the new life that God has. I just want to say this. Christianity is not just a self-improvement plan. And some of us live as if that's the way it is, that Christianity is just like a life enhancement program. Here, Paul is undermining that. He's saying the life of God is meant to move you toward freedom, and yet you can never get to freedom in the same way that Jesus could not get to resurrection until he walked through the cross, you and me are called to follow Jesus. And that means following, in, following him into our own little deaths, which don't feel so little much of the time. Uh, these passages mean more to me now than they ever have in any other season of my life. And I stand in front of you today as a person who is experiencing freedom in degrees that I've never experienced in my life. And I would say to you that that is only true because I have walked right up into hell and brokenness and confronted my sin and felt like a failure. And y'all, the biggest challenge that many of us have when it comes to the good news is moving into the places that Jesus calls us to move into. And I'm gonna tell you, there is no good life apart from you running out of your own efforts to make the good life happen. It just doesn't work. It's something other than Christianity. And I would have told you a few years ago that I really believe that. <laughs> and then fall apart and disappear and fail and have to get up and hold a microphone week after week after week after week and you find out what you really believe. So we're going to look at the text. We're going to have and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. First baptism, first movement. So on a very simple level, uh, baptism, which is a sacrament in the church, um, the word sacrament means mystery. So if you don't feel like you totally understand baptism or communion, you're in really good company. Like the word itself speaks to us of mystery. Uh, but, but what we do understand is that baptism, and Paul says this in a really beautiful way, baptism uh, prefigures or represents life. And then you go under the water. So there's like death and burial. And then you come up, new life. It also speaks to us in a way that like a five-year-old could understand. Like you hop in the bathtub, you get clean. Like baptism actually says some things that symbolize certain things that we need to feel. Life, death, burial, resurrection, cleansing, regeneration. Those things are very simply like the low-hanging fruit of baptism. Similarly, this speaks to us symbolically of a meal, of being fed it, it prefigures a feast which will be abundant, but we're not having a massive feast right now. We're, we're tasting something that speaks to us of something else. But if baptism and communion are just symbolic, we're missing something. What Christians have believed and what Anglicans believe and what most Christians throughout the ages have believed is that baptism while it symbolizes certain things, and communion, while it symbolizes certain things, that there's also a real presence of God in these sacraments, that God's actually doing something at the same time. So Paul, in this moment, is speaking to you of a sacrament, 
but he's also speaking to you of an outcome, a manifestation, a way of life. And the way of life outcome that Paul's speaking when he references baptism is an old life giving way to a new life. The power of God infusing an old life. Now at the time Paul was writing these words, there would have been a word babto, which would have been the word used in the kitchen when you'd wash your vegetables. It were babto, it's just washed. And then baptizo was a word that was used when uh, vegetables were pickled. So they would be immersed, but then infused in a way that would change them. Paul very carefully, Jesus very carefully chose baptizo, not babto. And you need to think about that because it would, it would imply that Paul and Jesus didn't believe that these were just symbolized. If Babto were enough, it'd just be like, get washed, and that's like enough. He was saying that, and something's happening. Something's changing. God's design for you, what God is shouting to you and me through the sacrament of baptism, speaks to us about change, about power, about freedom in the same way that death, burial, and resurrection speak to us about life on the other side of whatever impossible obstacle seemingly stands in our way. So Paul speaks to us of baptism. He speaks to us of what it means. And I just want to say this to you. If you've never been baptized as a baby, as a kid, as an adult, we want to baptize you at this church. We're going to make provision for that. We're going to form and plan and do spiritual discipleship so that you can be baptized. We believe baptism is really important for introverts and extroverts alone alike. Getting wet in front of a bunch of people is not always the most fun thing to do. And yet, man, the power of God is happening there. So there's a story um, about beer. Um, the story says that Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, and Ulrich Zwingli, another great reformer, were sitting at a bar. And this is not a joke. It, I think this actually happened. And they're arguing over the essence of the sacrament. And Zwingli, who's kind of the father of Baptists in many respects, says it's just a symbol. And the story says that Luther dips his finger in his beer in the froth, as every good German would do. And he writes in Latin on the table in the bar, a real presence. We believe, and you should believe, that every time you come to this table, there's a real presence of Jesus. That when a person enters into the waters of baptism, that there is a real presence of God in the Holy Spirit that moves us toward what God has in mind for us. Baptism reminds us and it catalyzes us. So does communion. So the second thing that Paul says here that I think is really important, the second big idea for us is that following Jesus into death enables us to follow him into life. But here's the problem. We want life without death. We want joy and victory without suffering and obedience and sacrifice. That's the American sin. It's the sin of us Westerners. We want the good stuff. We want the life enhancement, but we're not so sure about the death part, about the obedience part, about the sacrifice part, about coming into a clear understanding of our frailty and our sin and our vulnerability. And I just want to say to you, you can't have one without the other. The church in many respects, Western Christianity in many respects, we've got way off track with this. We want all the good stuff without some of the, the harder stuff, some of the more grown-up stuff, the, the sober stuff, the stuff that causes us to look inside and ask real questions about who we are and how we are. 
There is access, and this is so important, y'all. Access to life and power happens on the other side of confession and repentance and the acceptance of the help that only God can bring. You literally can't do this on your own. And many of us, we come into places like this, and I run into it all the time as a pastor. And I had my own version of this a couple of years ago. It's like you, you say with your mouth, you believe that Jesus has done something that you can't do, but then we live as if it's all down to us. And at some point, that incongruency comes to a head, and one of two things happens. This is where a lot of people walk away from Christianity because they go, well, I don't think it works. I'm not as happy as I want to be. I'm not doing as well as I want to be. I failed. I've disappointed myself and others. And so I'm just going to take my toys and go home. Or you begin to name that which is fundamentally true and ask God to come and show you his mercy and bring healing and forgiveness. And then doors open up that move us into increasing freedom. I am more free than I've ever been because I have had to confront deep failure and pain and disappointment. And I believe that for all of us, what Paul is saying here is so true. If you will follow him down a dark road, and some of you might be in that place right now, feeling like I don't, this is not working out like I thought it was going to work out. My personal improvement plan is not going like I thought it was going to go. This is not what I thought I was gonna get when I signed up for X, Y, or Z. This is the opportunity. I would even be so bold as to say, I think that in large part, God engineers our lives to get us into places where we would be open to healing, grace, and redemption. He's moving you toward liminal spaces so that he can do something for you that you cannot do on your own. That's why an American religion that does not invite us to see our frailty, our, our sin, our vulnerability is really no kind of religion worth having. Now, the the parody or the caricature of it. I don't sit for caricature artists because I know they're going to, you know, they take your like most vulnerable feature and blow it out beyond all reasonable proportion. So like for me, I had buck teeth, big ears. I was skinny when I was a kid. So I knew what was going to happen. I was like, you're just going to make me look like I already feel like I look. Now it's, you know, my forehead just seems to be getting taller and taller and taller. So like, you know, if you want to know what you would look like for a caricature artist, my kids have taught me this. Uh, put your phone on 0.5 and hold it right up in front of your face at a strange angle and take a picture. And that's your caricature. It's amazing. I promise you, you should do it. And you'll never sit for a caricature artist. What we do is we're afraid of being vulnerable and exposed. And so a lot of times we just back up from our own vulnerability and frailty. Sin in the New Testament, the word is hamartiage. It means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It doesn't mean that you had a great time missing the mark necessarily. Sometimes we do. It just means we fell short of what God has for us. The moment I can admit that I fall short through things I do and things I fail to do, through behaviors, and through attitudes, then I'm opening myself up for Jesus to come and make up the difference in that gap between my best efforts and the good life. Your effort 
to live the good life will ultimately run out of steam. And in that moment of steam running out, that is not the best opportunity for you to depart faith. It's the opportunity for you to say, Jesus, come and make up the difference for me. What Paul is saying here is that when we move into those spaces, don't back up. Stay right there and let Jesus do for you what he has desired to do for you. And I believe that requires a kind of open-handedness, a sense of relinquishment. So you know I like stories. Um, I like the Narnia books as well because they're great stories. And the story of Eustace and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is probably my favorite example of this reality. Eustace was a brat. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was just a rotten kid, and uh, nobody really liked him. And there's a moment in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader where he uh, separates himself from his, from his colleagues because he's a bit of a butthead, and uh, he goes away, and he finds a dragon uh, who's dying conveniently, and he uh, watches the, the, the dragon die, and then he goes to sleep on the dragon's uh, treasure, and he slides Um, a ring up all the way to the middle of his arm and he wakes up having become on the outside what he already was on the inside. He wakes up as a dragon and he's terrified and sad. And then he realizes being a dragon has some benefits. Like you can start a campfire really fast. Um, You can take your friends for like trips, flying places, you know, it's like a real convenient travel strategy. So what he does, and this is what many of us do, he just decides, well, if I'm going to be a dragon, I'll just be the best kind of dragon that I could possibly be. And some of you have settled for the life of a dragon thinking, well, I'll just make the best of this. But what God wanted all along was to undragon him. And see, this is where a failure to admit what's wrong keeps us from the life that God has. So what, does, what happens in that story? Aslan, the God character, leads this dragon up on top of a mountain and he says to the dragon, do you want to be a boy? Go ahead and dig in. And dragons have good claws and so he digs in and he peels off all this skin, but there's like more dragon skin underneath. And this is what most of you, and this is what we've experienced. Every time I try to undragon myself, there's more dragon underneath. And then Aslan says to him, if you want to be a boy again, you're going to have to let me do it. And I would submit to you that that's the question that God asks all of us throughout our lives as it relates to our own sin. If you want to be a girl again, a boy again, you're going to have to let me do it but it's going to hurt because he's going to cut deeper than we would ever do. And Aslan makes him a boy again. If we're not willing to get into some of those lonely places, we'll never find out what it means to recover the humanity, the God-bearing, image-bearing person that you're meant to increasingly be. And it makes sense that we don't want to go there because it's scary. And it hurts. Here's the third thing. When we surrender our lives, and I would add to this, and our attempts to live the good life on our own terms, sin increasingly loses its hold on us. What would your life look like if you were increasingly free from shame and sin? Oh. 
freedom. Paul says this, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin for whoever has died is free from sin. And I just want to say to you, there are things at play in your life that simply need to go. And that's not just the bad behavior. It it is that. I mean, God wants you free. So he, he doesn't want you to do hurtful, harmful, and bad things. He also wants you to pay attention to the more subtle sins of your life, things you believe, attitudes and postures that keep us from living and being who God's called us to be. God wants us to be the kinds of people who are willing to stand still and let him show us the things in our life that he wants to restore, heal, forgive, and transform. Christianity is a life that is all about transformation. Transformation is always an outcome of grace. It's an outcome of the working of the gospel. But many of us are so afraid of facing our failure, our sin, our vulnerability, that we never get into that pressurized place where God shows up and does the thing that only he can do. I believe, most of me believed that I trusted, and I did trust in God. I I loved Jesus. I was a follower of Jesus. I was committed to spiritual practices. All that was true. And there were parts of me that lived as if it were all down to me, that I was fundamentally responsible to carry the weight of the world on my shoulder. Nobody made me do that. That was me and the enemy and my brokenness. And the gift of burnout for me, the gift of hitting a wall, and some of you are right up next to the wall and you're thinking, if I could just like back up and go to Europe for a couple of weeks, maybe I'll be fine. I'm just going to tell you, your crap's going to follow you to Europe. (laughs) Pogo, the great prophet of our age, the cartoonist said, wherever you go, there you are. I recognize that I was the common denominator in all the stupid stuff that I ever got myself into. And it wasn't until I got to a point where I was like, all right, I'm having a very hard time functioning and moving forward, but I am too far in to run away. And I began to sit still and say, God, show me where I have sinned and got myself off track. Show me the things I believe that have put me in a position of believing that life was all about me doing X, Y, or Z. And some of you experience sin that others call virtue. Oh, she's such a hard worker. Oh, she's always going to be there. She, he's going to always go the extra mile. He'll always blah, 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 blah. Some of us, some of our sins, we can dress those things up and take them to church and everybody thinks we're awesome. Now, some of us rob liquor stores. What I found in my own life, and I've never robbed a liquor store. Um, I, I, maybe I, I've thought about it, but I've never done it. But what I found is that when we are striving and we're overdoing it, we also reward ourselves with some really silly and childish stuff sometimes. That's why people are addicted to pornography and entertainment and chemicals, because we, we wear ourselves out over here and then we reward ourselves. Like Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites, 
the establishment owed him a Snickers bar. Everyone over 45 knows what I'm talking about. The Lord wants you to hold still enough so that he can show you who he is. And the thing that I think it brings me to is that moment in the Exodus where the Lord tells people, when you are bit by the snake, look at the snake on the pole and you will be healed. There's a sense in which we're all invited to look to Jesus in new ways because he wants you to be free. Freedom. Freedom. So here's the question I want us to hold for a few moments before we come to communion. Where is death and sin? Where are those things exercising some form of dominion in your life? And what would it look like for you to be free? And just to give you some context, uh, because some of you are thinking, if you're not robbing a liquor store, this isn't about you. And I just want to say that's not true. So when I was in my darkest place, when, when I was in the scariest place of my life just a couple of years ago, the biggest lie that I believed was that I was totally alone. There is a difference between loneliness and solitude. And I've had to make friends with some areas of my life that feel really alone and find God there. And those places are starting to be more life-giving and renewing versus soul-killing and stealing. The enemy wanted me to believe that I was alone. God wanted to lead me into what could seem like a lonely place so that I could find him and find myself and find life and find a grounding. So where is sin exercising some form of control over you? And what would freedom look like? I'm working through this in my own life and I want us to hold it just for a few minutes before we come to communion. You can take a picture of this. You could journal about it this week because you won't certainly get to the bottom of it. Um, this is an invitation to start a process of reflection. So after a few moments of silence, I'll lead us to the communion table. But first, let's just be still in reflection.